and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Each and every week we bring you the very best coverage of all the big stories involving the Blues and on this episode we've got plenty to get stuck into, including Timo time ticks nearer as Werner edges closer to Chelsea move, but what does it mean for Tammy Abraham? How about Frank Lampard? With Werner set to join Hakim Ziyech and potentially also Leicester's Ben Chilwell as stellar new recruits, what are the expectations on Lampard's side for this and next season? Plus, Chelsea FC women declared champions after PPG leads to XTC for Emma Hayes and co. All that to come, plus your questions answered on this episode of Straight Outta Cobham. Yes, welcome in, listener, to your home of quality Chelsea chatter. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, and joining me for the show are The Athletic's three wise men when it comes to Chelsea. Fresh from moonlighting on other pods produced by The Athletic, it's a home fixture today for Liam Toomey. Hello. Also joining us, he spent much of the last week profiling Gabriele Ambrosetti. Uh, younger <laughs> listeners, if you're scratching your head, you might want to ask a more senior supporter, uh, but don't expect them to remember that much about the Italian Ryan Giggs. It's the English Roberto Beccantini, Simon Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. So I just Googled Italian sports writers and he came up. Is, is Beccantini somebody who's worked you familiar with? Uh, not really, but I'm sure he does great stuff. Just like, just like Ambrosetti did. Where's James Horncastle when you need him? Yeah, quite, quite. We don't have James Horncastle, but we do have the Athletics' Mr. Broad Brief. It's Dominic Fifield. Hello, 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 hello. Sorry, I don't have James Horncastle's hair. No, well, neither do I. Who (laughs) does? Uh, by the way, remember, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can sign up right now and enjoy a 30-day free trial by going to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod to enjoy the best football writing anywhere, just as the football returns. OK, first up today, let's talk Timo. So late last week, The Athletic dropped a bonus pod on this feed as Liam joined Adam Leventhal, Rafa Honigstein and David Ornstein to discuss Chelsea's apparent victory in the race to sign RB Leipzig striker Timo Werner. Uh, that show's still available if you want to catch up. First of all, tell us where we are with the deal as we record the show. It's the start of the week. The deal not quite signed and sealed yet. No, but the two most important things have happened, which is that Chelsea have stated their intention to meet the release clause and Timo Werner has said yes to Chelsea. So nothing really else matters at this point. Um, There are still some things to finalise in terms of the contract. The information that we were getting last week um, is that it's likely to be finished at some point this week. Obviously, the, the deadline on that release clause is June 15th and there's plenty of time um, for that release clause to be activated once everything is sorted. And and then, obviously, Werner has to be in a position to do a medical and things like that. And So, yeah, there, there are no real problems anticipated. He's going to be a Chelsea player. You say the deadline for the for the release clause. What what happens if that does pass and nothing's happened? Does that does that mean that Chelsea can get him for cheaper? Uh, well, I guess in theory, um, in in practice, the suggestion was that that RB Leipzig were very much pushing to sell him before that point um, because they have financial fair play considerations and they were maybe slightly worried that if that deadline passed that they wouldn't be guaranteed to get as much for him in a post-pandemic or sort of mid-pandemic market. So I think all sides have agreed on on, on this price and it just makes things easier if if everything is done on this timetable. But as I said, there's plenty of time to make all that happen and they are 
a long way down the road in terms of sorting his contract and all the other little details that need to be finalised with transfers like this. Tom, am I overstating it to say that this actually feels pretty seismic? We're talking about one of the one of the hottest strikers in Europe at the moment and, and Chelsea have managed to, to barge their way to the front of, of what seemed like a pretty lengthy queue at one point. I think it's it's more significant given the context in which it's happened, um, the pandemic and, and the fact that there is a club out there. And we always suspected that Roman Abramovich might do this. Uh, the club out there that, that isn't going to be restricted dramatically by COVID-19 and all the implications that it'll have on, on club finances around the world. Uh, it is an opportunity for Chelsea to to demonstrate their clout and, they, and they've done it quite stunningly. I mean, look, Chelsea spent an awful lot of money to, to bring Alvaro Morata uh, to the club uh, from, from Real Madrid a few seasons back. And at the time that we weren't all the jaws weren't hitting the hitting the floor over that deal, but it, but it's because a, a club has gone out there and potentially spent fifty three million pounds, whatever it is, this summer in particular that has made us sit up and take notice. Um, and when you actually add that to Zayac, which was obviously a pre pandemic signing, uh, it already feels as if Chelsea are are moving in in a in a different direction to to most clubs and when you've got fellow contenders looking at free transfers and and loans potentially as their as their main incoming transfer business this summer and Chelsea have gone out and already spent that much money and are still in the market for a left back they could still be in the market for a centre half i think that sends out a real real message and psychologically more than anything else i think this is huge for Chelsea Simon, Maria Granovskaya, obviously a, a key figure in, in getting this deal, as were others. But but from what we hear and from, from the reports that we've read on The Athletic, Frank Lampard also played a significant role in, in convincing Werner to join. And, and that's maybe a bit of a shift in tack for Chelsea in that Lampard feels able to say to the player, look, I'm going to be here for a couple of years. I'd like you to be here with me. It might turn out that that's wishful thinking, but it's it's kind of refreshing that the manager feels able to do that. Oh, for sure. I think um, with Zayac as well, we got an indication of just how how much of a role Frank Lampard was playing in the transfer, perhaps transfers in the past, um, whilst the coach had been um, sort of in on the conversation, perhaps uh, he wasn't quite as involved as, say, Frank Lampard has been, who is not only trying to convince the player to, to join, obviously, but is sort of reassuring them about his future at the same time because you can imagine if you're Timo Werner you're pretty aware of Chelsea's history of hiring and firing uh, especially when he was clearly in having some kind of dialogue with Jurgen Klopp the the contrast in in the stability of Liverpool and Chelsea has certainly cost Chelsea transfers in the past. Um, the likes of Virgil van Dijk and Oxlade-Chamberlain, one of the reasons why they chose Liverpool over Chelsea was because they were sort of far more, far happier and far more reassured about Jurgen Klopp's uh, strength and the message he was giving than uh, Antonio Conte was at the time. But getting back to the point, yes, Frank Lampard was heavily involved in Zayek, heavily involved in Timo Werner, was making a point to Werner that, look, this is my plan for you, but also the plan for Chelsea over the next few years, and this is where you're going to fit in. And if you're Timo Werner and have got a little, a few doubts over whether you should make the move to Chelsea, then Frank Lampard certainly eased them. And 
he certainly seems to be giving off the vibe from what I understand that he's going to be around for next season and, and perhaps beyond. But he, he'll he know better than anyone as a player that played under many coaches that he still has to deliver results. So whilst obviously for now he seems pretty secure in his position, he knows or he will certainly know that if he doesn't get the results required, then, then Chelsea will obviously sort of look elsewhere. But for now, his future is very positive and so is Chelsea's. One player whose future has been called into a question as as a result of this is Tammy Abraham. We've got a question here from Andrew Termer via Twitter. He asks, does Tammy want to stay and compete for his spot? He won't be a guaranteed starter anymore as we upgrade the squad. What do you think, Liam? Some some talk about maybe they're being too up front, but, but it's not as if Lampard has ever played that before. Yeah, well, I've got a piece actually on The Athletic at the moment looking at this very subject, how... Werner's arrival could affect Abraham and I think it has the potential to go a number of different ways. Um, first of all, in answer to Andrew's question, all the indications are that Abraham is, you know, will back himself as he's backed himself this season against in competition with Giroud and with Bashwai um, to play and make himself important to the team that Lampard is building. But there's also, you know, a, a healthy kind of wariness because he knows that Werner is coming in expecting to play and um, there's an interesting dynamic that will that will evolve there and I think it's only more interesting because if you look at the the strikers that Chelsea have, have targeted or looked most closely at in the last few months in terms of Dries Mertens, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and now Werner they're all converted wingers they're all players who can play up front instead of Abraham but they can also play with him either as a second striker or off the left in the position that we've most commonly seen Christian Pulisic in um, this season. So what it does fundamentally, I think, is give Lampard a lot a lot more different options to do different things tactically, to do different things in terms of combinations of personnel. Um, and it obviously gives him a lot more firepower because Werner is, is one of the most dangerous goal scorers in all of Europe. Um, so it's a big challenge for Abraham. And what you might see is that two things. Um, one, Werner's contract, which we believe rises to about £170,000 a week, plus bonuses, um, that could become the new benchmark in Abraham's contract talks. Previously, it was it, it was Hudson-Odoi's £120,000 a week um, salary package. And also, I think I wouldn't be surprised to see Abraham kind of park the contract conversation until he has a better idea of how Werner's presence will affect his game time. That might come from a conversation with Lampard. It might come from waiting until the start of next season and, and seeing how the, the starting eleven shakes out. But it's a it's a fluid situation. I think Abraham will um, back himself. He is prepared to fight for his spot. But there, I think there's probably also a dose of pragmatism there where you want to make sure you're, you're not putting yourself in a position that you, you can't get out of. What I found quite interesting is um, is just hearing how the situation was handled as as far as uh, Tammy and and Frank Lampard and 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 Timo Werner's signing is concerned. That there was no conversation, from what I'm hearing, um, between Frank and Tammy before the news broke. Now Frank would have known that this was coming, um, that the news would leak out, but from what I'm hearing, he didn't sort of have any chats with Tammy Abraham beforehand. He didn't want to give any reassurances or discuss what his plan was um, 
the impression is is that he wants to see the way that Tammy Abraham is going to react to this news, that the feeling is he wants to see how Tammy Abraham reacts to genuine competition and he wants to see perhaps Tammy Abraham being pushed genuinely because, of course, Giroud and, and, and Batshuayi have been very much backup options. When Tammy Abraham's fit, he started every game for Chelsea. Um, but now he's got someone who I think will be playing with Tammy but could technically take his place in the team. So it is a question mark of Tammy Abraham's um, mentality. I think we all know he's got the ability, but now his mentality is going to be put under the microscope. Wanted to ask you, Liam, a bit about the mentality of Werner. I know this is something that you spoke about with um, with Adam and the guys on the other pod. But for anyone who's not heard that, tell us a bit about about Werner the person. Is is there any danger that he'll be disappointed that he, he didn't get the move to Liverpool or or Bayern last summer, with which he was he was heavily linked? Or or is he the kind of person who who is going to put that behind him and, and Chelsea will be his his main focus? Well, the impression that we got of Werner last week, and um, I would advise everyone to read Rafa Honigstein's piece, uh, which kind of looks a bit more at Werner the person and the journey that he went on in Germany. Um, but the, the impression that we got of him in reporting our big inside story piece last week was that fundamentally he wants stability um, in his career. He gave Liverpool a deadline to make a to make a decision on whether they were going to sign him because he didn't want to end the Bundesliga season and you know go on end-of-season holidays, whatever form they may take in, in a pandemic, um, and potentially start looking at houses and things like that without his future completely certain. Because last summer, he had already got to the point where he was saying goodbye to people at RB Leipzig. He, he was already mentally at Bayern Munich, basically, when that move fell apart. And, and he found that really difficult to get over. Um, I think it's a credit to him that after that, he did really knuckle down and has had the best scoring season of his career at RB Leipzig this season under Julian Nagelsmann. And he's actually evolved as a player as well. Um, so that probably bodes well for Chelsea. But I think we, the impression we've got is that in the conversations that he had with Lampard, um, within the context of the broader kind of charm offensive that Chelsea mounted, he was very much convinced that he will be a good fit for the for the young squad they have, the the bright young team they're building, um, and I think he he has a degree of confidence now in Lampard as a coach that he will be put in a position to succeed, and he he didn't have that relationship with Lampard that he already had with Klopp, dating back a bit further. But there are signs that there's there's the beginnings of something there. And I think Chelsea supporters have every reason to be optimistic that when he gets to Chelsea there will be no thoughts of Liverpool. He'll be he'll be fully committed and, and he'll be ready to hit the ground running. Uh, Don, while we, we're talking about transfers, we should we should have a chat about some potential ones too. Max Fenson's been on. He wants to know why aren't Chelsea more strongly linked with any centre halves? Do you think that that's something that's gonna evolve over the next couple of months or, or is it just going to be well we, we've got Werner and, and we hope to get Chilwell too and that will do or are there other areas of the team which uh, you think will be upgraded? Definitely the centre-half issue the left, left-footed left centre-half issue remains on in the inbox for, for things that Lampard will want to address but 
we have to be realistic as well. We, we, you know, whilst whilst having said earlier in this pod, they have bottomless pockets. They don't have bottomless pockets. I mean, they're, they're, some of their business has been very shrewd over the the last few seasons, and obviously the fact that they weren't serving a a one window or two window effectively uh, transfer ban allowed them to to save up the monies from from the likes the sales of the likes of Morata and Hazard, and and they they are spending that money now. Chilwell looks as if he he could cost them anything up to eighty million pounds, given that Leicester City do not allow their best players to leave on the cheap. If if Chelsea look elsewhere for for a left back and and, and Nicolas uh, Tagliafico at that uh, Ajax has been has been mentioned, he's he's far cheaper, but he, he he doesn't come with the the experience of life in the Premier League, and he's he's also a few years older than Ben Chilwell, so. You know, a bit of a compromise signing he would be, but I imagine that once they've once they've brought in a left back, and I fully expect them to bring in a left back, then Lampard turns to the central defensive issue. Um, they've they've sort of tried so many different combinations and and different personnel there over the course of this season. Uh, that is an indication both of the the age of a lot of those people in in the in in the Chelsea squad and the, the relative lack of experience they have in that position. But also, there's a, there are doubts there. There are nagging doubts from from management. The performances haven't always been convincing from those out on the pitch, and they they will want to address that. Uh, but we'll have to see how much how much money they have left, and and which left back has come in. Because obviously, if, if they go for Chilwell, then the barrel might be running a bit drier. Simon, you you've been reporting on the on the Chilwell links for the Athletic. I see this morning that Manchester City are in for him too. Is is there any concern as far as you're aware amongst the Chelsea hierarchy? A that, that might be they might be beaten to the deal or that Leicester will set the price too high, but also that Chilwell's form this season has has not been great. You know, he's he's not looked like an eighty million pound left back if such a thing exists. <laughs> well I th- I think inevitably um the, the the club that would be most delighted about talk about Man City and, and it is genuine uh, that City are interested um will be Leicester City. That they will love a um a bidding war between two of the richest clubs um because that will help them get the kind of um price they're looking for. Now as far as Chilwell's form is concerned, I, I don't think that is a massive factor from from everything I've been told. It's it's basically Chilwell has been identified as the perfect long term option on the left flank with Obviously, Reese James once he reaches his full potential on the right. I mean, of course, as Pilicueta will have quite a thing to say about that for the time being. But you can understand the thinking. It was a massive, massive um, hole, you'd say, in Frank Lampard's game plan um, when football was being played this season. That neither Alonso or Emerson really proved that they can be the left back for Chelsea. Uh, Alonso showed his quality in attacking sense, but his defensive flaws were still there for all to see. Emerson's gone backwards. So Ben Chilwell was, as I've been sort of saying for months really, was was the one that's been seen as the long-term option. Um, now, as far as the price goes, Leicester may be asking for that kind of figure. Um, Chelsea aren't interested in coming close to that figure. So this is where the, the brinkmanship comes in. Um, now, Man City, can they bid outbid Chelsea? Quite possibly. Um, but how much of a priority is Ben Chilwell for them? It, there's so many um, s- scenarios and things that come into effect of a transfer like this, but I think Chelsea have got quite a bit of confidence that out of the two clubs, 
um, Ben Chilwell currently um, favours a move south, but money talks at the end of the day, so Chelsea will still have to try and agree a deal with Leicester somehow. Okay, lastly on transfers, uh, the Jackmeister has been in touch. He says, lots of good momentum with bringing players in. Any update on potential transfers out of the squad? Uh, Liam, I see Pedro appears to be heading for Italy. Lots of reports linking him with Roma. There, there will be some, not dead weight, but there will be some players who need shifting on from this squad. And I guess Alonso, Emerson, a couple of left-backs will be will be high up that list of players players potentially heading for the door marked exit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've known for some time that that Pedro is on his way out and I think Werner's arrival, another player who can who can play wide as well as through the middle only solidifies that. Um Willian is likely to go unless he 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 drops his demand for a 3-year extension. That's the only way in which, you know, a compromise might be reached. And I wouldn't be shocked really to see both Alonso and Emerson leave but that that of course is partly contingent on what the market looks like because Marina Granovskaya doesn't sell low there will have to be bids that that work for Chelsea from from interested clubs but I I expect at least one of them to be moved on um, maybe two obviously Mishy Batshuayi is in that bracket now where he's got a year left on his deal Werner coming in makes him even more clearly uh, surplus to requirements. He wasn't really in Lampard's plans before. There are other players who are kind of on the on the fringes. Someone like Ross Barkley is still kind of in, in a bit of squad purgatory and, and Ruben Loftus-Cheek is back now. And the, in terms of the broader picture for Chelsea, they had quite a big wage bill in the last accounts. Uh, I think it was £281 million. And obviously you, you, you've you've lost Hazard from that, so you've lost one of your highest earners, but you've also given a whole load of new contracts to, to a lot of these young guys who are now on proper first team money. So where they can where they can trim that and make space for for other new players coming in, I think they they'll look to be aggressive in doing so. Well for more on transfers and Timo Werner and how Chelsea won the race to get him, head over to the Athletic now and do take advantage of that 30 day free trial if you aren't yet a subscriber. Theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod, the place to go to get that. Next on our agenda today, Chelsea champions. So on Friday of last week, the FA announced that the Women's Super League season would be curtailed because of the coronavirus pandemic and that the final league table would be decided on a points per game basis. That means that despite lying second in the standings at the time the league was paused, Chelsea have been declared champions ahead of Manchester City and Arsenal. Let's get the views of Chelsea's top scorer this season, Beth England, on winning the title in strange circumstances. I I can completely sympathise with uh, Man City and stuff, but I do believe we did deserve to win it and I think the girls are are more relieved now that there's been finally an outcome that's that's been sorted and that we're not just waiting and waiting and waiting because everyone's eager to get back, everyone's eager to, to get back into the swing of things. So I think the sooner we got that outcome and we can start and plan going forward, um, when we're going to be starting back training, etc., was put a lot of girls' minds at ease, I think. Yeah. I mean, there don't seem to be have been many complaints, really, about um, Chelsea being awarded the title. I mean, you, you've done well in the head-to-heads against Arsenal and City. You were unbeaten. You had that game in hand. Um, so I guess even though that call, maybe you're not all jumping for joy and celebrating the way you normally would be, there's definitely a sense that you were you were very much worthy winners. Yeah, of course. I mean, as, as you touched on, we, um, we, we were unbeaten in the league. Um, 
we did well against the, the top teams and um, I know it's easy for me to sit here and say it, but I do believe we deserve to win it and even if we'd have continued the season I still believe we would have gone on to have won it um, I felt like the team were in a good place we weren't really dropping points anywhere we were going from strength to strength so I think ultimately that probably would have been the outcome but yeah uh, I've spoke to a few of the girls and obviously everyone's of the moon to have, have won it's just a shame we couldn't celebrate as a team properly and that we're over a Zoom call but it were nice nonetheless to be able to share his feelings on it with everyone together and including the staff yeah you know what that means Beth it means the the screamer you scored against City was technically the goal that clinched the title <laughs> oh well um, I'll take that um, I'd have probably more said um, Marin's goal against City because we won that game as opposed to drawing it but yeah, but, yeah I guess you could look at it like that it was uh, that were a, definitely a good game for the neutral I spoke to Magda a couple of weeks ago and she said she didn't particularly enjoy that game, but it was it was incredible fun to watch. Yeah, it was it was I think it were a complete mix of array of emotions throughout that game. It was we went behind twice, then we went in front, then we thought we were gonna win, then a few minutes later they equalised and it was just yeah, save penalty, it were absolute carnage. But like I said, it were definitely a good game for a neutral watching. It feels like football as a whole has had a real um kind of growing awareness of, of just the value of kind of like sports psychology and the whole mental approach to the game and how much of a difference that can make to performance. Do you, do you think looking back now that that was pretty much the, the only thing that was keeping you from, from doing what you're doing now? It wasn't, any, wasn't really anything technically or tactically. It was more just the way you were, were you maybe just in too much in your own head about certain things? Yeah, 100%. I think I've always had the ability. The ability has always been there. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, Chelsea took me on board in the first place. They knew um, what I was capable of. It was just a case of how do we get that out of her. And the best way they got it out of me was actually putting me on loan to get game time and and figure my own self-worth out somewhere else um, before I went back. I've always have been someone that's very hard on myself and very critical a bit of a perfectionist as some people say but I think the best thing that I could have learned was to not necessarily not care as much but let things go a little bit easier and give myself more of a break when certain things aren't going how I'd expect them to go and stuff so um, I definitely would say if there was one thing holding me back it would have been my mentality towards things I guess it's a part of growing up as well I was able to grow up with it alongside getting experience so I think that that definitely was a big part of it for me and and last season was a, a really big breakthrough for you with you know 22 goals and did, did you feel did, did you feel different back at Chelsea from from day one did it did it feel like right now this is this is kind of where my Chelsea career kind of properly properly begins now yeah I do I think because the first time I went to Chelsea it was I was kind of like a little fish in a big pond and I felt like I had to prove myself to all the big players that were there at the time. Whereas when I came back the second time, it was more like I've already proved myself. I don't I don't need to overcompensate or overdo anything to, to get anyone's respect. I think I'd already earned people's respect uh, from being on loan and it was more like I could walk with my shoulders held a little bit higher with that confidence knowing that I was able to perform better and believe in myself a bit more ultimately yeah and that's the kind of 
mind, mindset you, you need, especially at a club like Chelsea, isn't it? Where there are always players coming in. They're always being ambitious in terms of recruiting to strengthen the squad. And you had Sam Kerr coming in in the middle of this season. And, and of course, you and her have formed a, a fantastic partnership. How, how did it feel when, when you first heard that she was coming in? Were you worried at all? Or did you have conversations with Emma and, and about how, what the plan was? It's a question I get asked a lot, actually. And I wouldn't necessarily say I was worried um, with Sam coming in because I, I was in good form. I had a good first half of the season. And ultimately, we're a team where we're going to get the best players and we want to win. And I felt Sam coming in is gonna, was going to be a really strong point for us um, especially going forward, aiming towards Champions League, etc. And um, it's just another, I guess, challenge for me to better myself even more because I think if if you would have been speaking to the best a few years ago before a launch, she would have crumbled and you would have seen a completely different side. Whereas now I'm, I'm at a stage where I don't need to fear someone coming in. It's just another, I guess, a challenge of, okay, you're coming in, you're, you, you're the best striker in the world, but you're at Chelsea now and let's see what you can do. And I, I, I loved playing with Sam from the minute she joined the team. She's such a lovely girl. And as you said, we've got a great partnership going on the pitch at the minute and um, it's something that I love. And I'm sure going forward, it's going to be a big thing helping us going further in the Champions League, especially. So I'm excited. Yeah. And I was, I was reading in an interview that, you know, some really nice quotes from Emma Hayes about you that, she she loves your story in part because you've had to work so hard for it and you've had to you've had to really dig deep to to reach the level you're at now and how how much of an impact has she had on your career because you know the whole image we have of, of Emma is she's this super charismatic leader she's built a, a great winning culture at Chelsea but for you personally how what sort of impact has she had on you probably the biggest impact that anyone's really had on me I think um I'm sure Emma won't mind me saying this because we've had many discussions about it she was very very hard on me when I was at Chelsea and she still is um she still pushes me and I think that was one of the reasons why I did struggle because I I did I was coming into this sort of adult world of football at Chelsea um being given a lot of not necessarily pressure but there was a lot of demands expected and I think, in a way, her being so hard on me and sending me on loan and things like that helped me grow up quicker and learn to value myself more. And she knows I'll always give everything. Um, I'm not a player that's uh, complacent. I'm very hardworking and stuff. And I guess at the start, I probably saw it as a huge negative. But as time's gone on, it's kind of reaped into a positive, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely does. So um, I think, again, it was just that mindset of needing to grow up a little and realise you're being pushed for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. Beth England, Chelsea's number nine there. Uh, right, Liam, you get the uh, the task of explaining points per game to, to anybody who, who doesn't know. It was really close, wasn't it, the way they worked it out between uh, Manchester City and between Chelsea? It was. Chelsea finished with a 2.6 point points per game Man City finished with 2.5 and it's kind of unprecedented for for a top tier league uh, to be settled this way and you look at it on the surface Chelsea weren't top when when the table was frozen so it seems a little bit controversial but you haven't had met much in the way of complaints from City about this decision I think it was fairly 
widely acknowledged that Chelsea have been the best team in the league this year. They had a game in hand. They were only a point behind City on the the final game before the resumption. They had gone to City and got a 3-3 draw with Beth England scoring the the final goal for them in that game. Um, And they'd done very well in the head-to-heads against City and against Arsenal. They were still unbeaten in the league. So I think there was... It was pretty clear that that, that Chelsea were deserving winners, um, and they were on a, a Zoom call with the players and staff and Emma Hayes on Friday when they knew the the news was coming down from the FA, and I'm told that the the atmosphere was was a bit surreal, really, slightly bittersweet because while there's an acknowledgement that it's a massive achievement to to win the title and and they clearly feel that you know they they're worthy winners. It's strange to to win a trophy not on the pitch and then not be able to celebrate in person with your teammates and and with with the staff that have helped you get there. And so there wasn't much in the way of cheering and you know open jubilation. It it was just more a well done onto the next one. And I think that's uh, that's the way Emma Hayes has also built Chelsea women. That's why they they keep winning. But it is a funny way to end a season, but I think fundamentally a happy one. And there are also suggestions that maybe the FA Cup could be rolled into the start of next season from the quarterfinal stage onwards. Chelsea, of course, are still in that. So there's actually still a possibility that they could do a treble, albeit a slightly delayed one. Simon, Emma Hayes dedicated the uh, the win to, to key workers, which is which is pretty on brand for, for Emma Hayes. I, I just wonder how crucial this might be in terms of her staying at Chelsea, because what it does is is give her another another crack at the Champions League next season, which is the, the one trophy that she hasn't won. So if there was any temptation for her to think, well, maybe I've achieved it all, perhaps that carrot dangling there is something that's going to going to keep her around for a little while longer. Yes, I mean, look, undoubtedly, Emma Hayes' reputation once again will be further enhanced um, at a time when, uh, of course, the England women's job is available. Um, Phil Neville, of course, being moved on, etc. But you do get the feeling that she's very much committed to Chelsea, especially, as you say, Matt, with with this this carrot, this, this holy grail, which, of course, the men's team... Um, took a long time to pursue um, that that Champions League triumph and um, the way that, that the team are playing right now I mean one should remember that okay they won the title via points per game but they're unbeaten which is a remarkable achievement up to the point that football was called off so look they've got close I think didn't they reach the semi-finals last time around I, I, I just think that um there's going to be more of the same. I think the ambition is there to stick around and perhaps carry on the job that she's um, she's doing so well at so far. She seems very much at home and very happy with uh, life at Chelsea and who can blame her? Well, congratulations to Hayes, her staff and players. Of course, they won the League Cup this season as well. OK, back to the men's side next. That Premier League restart getting ever closer. So we know that Chelsea will finally resume their 2020-21 Premier League season on Sunday the 21st of June when they take on Aston Villa in the West Midlands. And with dates now set for the first three rounds of fixtures after the unexpected pause, as well as the FA Cup quarterfinal at Leicester, Frank Lampard and his staff have begun fine-tuning their squad ahead of the resumption of the season. Uh, Simon, there was even a game at Stamford Bridge this past weekend. 
Yeah, um, the squad sort of basically played each other <laughs> with a with a few youngsters thrown in to, to help make up the numbers, and and, and understandably so. Um, we've gone from uh, non-contact training to contact training, and of course, the next step up from that is to try and get games into the players' legs um, ahead of the Aston Villa match. Um, fitness is one thing, match fitness is another. And we saw a number of the the players involved um, and they all looked to be getting stuck in, judging by the pictures that were that were put on the uh, the official app and website. Um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek got a little bit of a mention, which I think will perhaps uh, excite some fans to see him actually in action again. Um, I, I still wonder how fit he'll generally be in, in terms of once football resumes. But it's just very encouraging to see him actually involved in, in this practice game. And um, and as Frank Lampard has gone on to say, he, he's he's got a real impression that the players, everyone's excited for the start of the season. And I think um, we're all the same now. We, we can't wait to actually see a football kicked for real. Liam, some mentions Loftus-Cheek there. I, I wondered actually if, if this might be a little bit of a benefit to him because, yeah, he's not match fit, but but nobody else is either. So it's it's a fairly level playing field for him, isn't it? I totally agree. That thought has occurred to me over the last few days as well. It is a real leveller, and uh, and it might be the first bit of good luck that Ruben Loftus Sheik has had in about two years. Um, he he's he's been fully fit, you know, as as we know since about. A month before the shutdown, it was just match sharpness that was keeping him from being really in contention to get minutes. And and now everyone is in that same boat. And I think he will benefit from going through this process with the rest of the squad, feeling like a proper member of the first team squad again, preparing along the same timetable as them, playing in these, in these same tune-up matches as they are. And it will be very interesting to see how willing Lampard is to throw him in from from the start Um, I think he's got Lampard has more interesting decisions to make now in terms of team selection than he has at any other point this season Uh, particularly in midfield and particularly if N'Golo Kante's concerns can be allayed to the point where he is back in contention as well you've got what seven or eight really good options for maybe three starting spots and Loftus-Cheek is, is clearly going to be part of that and I think the priority for him now has to be to just get some time on the pitch in what remains of this season start to look and more importantly start to feel like the player he was before and put himself in a position where with another kind of off-season break he can really attack next season from, from day one and, and, and kickstart his career. Dom, obviously good news that the uh, the latest round of testing resulted in zero positive coronavirus tests. We're kind of talking here as if it's set in stone that we are going to get back underway and Chelsea will be playing at, at Villa on the 21st. How confident are you as we speak now that that, that is going to be the case? Is it, is it still really delicate and, you know, a couple of positive tests and, and we could be back to square one again? Or are we are we reasonably sure now that we are going to get restarted? I, I don't think a couple of positive tests would would uh, deflect uh, the the intention to 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 restart again later this month obviously a a second spike in the nation may well do that Um, but football with all its 
you know, all the funding it's poured into private testing um, has done everything that it can to to be ready to restart. I would, there is a caveat in as much as I'm not sure all the scientists out there who have studied or are studying and researching COVID-19 and its effects uh, are, are completely convinced that the time is right um, to be doing this. Um, we are doing this the wrong way round in, in many ways. Usually you'd have all the scientific research done first and then you'd know that it was definitely you were ready, you were safe and you could then play and we're doing it the other way around the scientists are playing catch-up in terms of their research and on all the effects of COVID-19 and there are valid concerns out there over the effects to elite sportsmen related to this virus particularly uh, around the, the effects that it has on the heart and lungs um, we did a piece last week on it and the athletic and you know, the scientific community elements of it are une- uneasy at the way things are going and the speed at which sport is restarting however we've you know the counter argument to that is the they are making it everything as safe as is as is possible certainly in terms of the testing and and the economics of uh, of the sports re- require that it comes back in in some capacity and, and i think at the moment that is what's holding sway uh, and i fully expect the premier league to be starting on the 17th of june as we anticipate at the moment and it's hoping that the next round of testing gives more cause for optimism. So next week, we could be previewing an actual game of football. That will be crazy. Uh, that's just about all we've got time for today, though. Before we go, Liam, what have you got up on the site now and what's to come from you this week? So Simon and I have a piece up on site currently about what Timo Werner's arrival could mean for Tammy Abraham. So by all means, go and read that. If you liked what you heard of uh, the Beth England interview, um, by all means, read the full write-up of the chat I had with her. And um, I've also got a big piece on Jorginho going up later this week. Excellent. Um, Simon, at the top of the show, you, you mentioned your Gabriele Ambrosetti piece. Give it a, a proper plug now. <laughs> yeah, the Italian Ryan Giggs. Um, it, it just shows that um, not all signings work out. Um, Gianluca Vialli um, gave him the big the big sell at his unveiling. A much to Ambrosetti's surprise. Um, so I've spoken to him about basically how those words that, that Viali uttered at that press conference um, basically ruined his Chelsea career before it began because um, he's a big fan of Ryan Giggs as he was at the time and knew that he couldn't get anywhere close to those standards. So um, uh, a really good, insightful piece from from perhaps someone, as you suggest, that, that not many Chelsea fans have heard of, but... A, a, an interesting read, nevertheless, of basically the perils of a of a of a player that arrives with with sort of big anticipation and doesn't deliver on those on those expectations, but is now actually using the lessons he learned from that period in his career as a football agent, um, so he can now pass on the lessons uh, he learned from his playing days onto his clients. Um, also on the site is a a read that I did with uh, David Ornstein about what we touched on earlier in the pod um, about um, Frank Lampard and, and, and what uh, the the signing of Werner and uh, Zayek says about his future. And then uh, this week, hopefully, I'll be um, writing up an interview um, with Christian Pulisic's uh, former youth coach at Borussia Dortmund. Of course, Pulisic, um, big signing. We shouldn't forget about him, really. Big signing um, from Chelsea that 
that could only show a little bit of what he could do due to injury when, when football was was being played this season. Um, so I'm going to speak to his former youth coach to find out exactly what makes Christian Pulisic tick and, and whether he thinks he's um, got a lot more to show in a Chelsea shirt than he's shown so far. Excellent. Looking forward to reading that. Um, Dom, you've been looking at the dilemma facing out-of-contract players over the next few months. Yeah, and it's something that's an issue that Chelsea have to address as well. Um, players that are out of contract on the 30th of June. Um, obviously, the season is going to drag on well beyond that now. Uh, the Premier League have, have been given the go-ahead effectively by FIFA to offer temporary extensions. So an extension basically until midnight on the day of your last game of the season uh, on the same terms that players are currently um, enjoying. Um, so what happens to William and, and Pedro in particular? Do they do they sign up and, and, and play on for Chelsea and risk potentially uh, uh, suffering an injury which might influence you know what, what suitors are out there to take them on for the beginning of next season if they're not going to stick about at Stamford Bridge we, we've obviously heard the, the suggestions this this week of Pedro to to Romo being they're quite strong so what that is a dilemma that he has to address um, and and but also a, a dilemma that clubs have to address there are there are players out there earning six figures a week who are out of contract on June the 30th, Adam Lallana at Liverpool being a, a primary example. Do clubs give them a six-week contract, pay £600,000 out to them if they're only going to sit on the bench at best, realistically? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma that, that clubs and players are having to address at a very peculiar time in the sport. There you go, listener. Plenty to get stuck into if you are a subscriber. If not, remember, you can take advantage of a free 30-day trial by going to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod. Uh, do join us again, same time, same place next week. But for now, from Dom, Simon, Liam and myself, thanks for your company. We'll catch up with you soon. 